0: Section 9 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. Chapter 9. The Democracy of Abraham Lincoln. Part 2. Upon this first point of the limitation upon the majority, whether of voters or representatives, which is the essence of our constitutional system of representation, Lincoln spoke in a manner which cannot be misunderstood. He said in the first inaugural, If by the mere force of numbers a majority should deprive a minority of any clearly written constitutional right, it might, in a moral point of view, justify revolution certainly would if such a right were a vital one but such is not the case all the vital rights of minorities and of individuals are so plainly assured to them by affirmations and negations guarantees and prohibitions in the constitution that controversies never arise concerning them A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations, and always changing easily with deliberate change of popular opinions and sentiments, is the only true sovereign of a free people. Nothing could be clearer than these sentences. In Lincoln's opinion, the violation of a vital constitutional right was moral justification for revolution and the last sentence gives a definition of free and real popular government, upon which it would be difficult indeed to improve. I have just said that one of the checks placed upon the power of the majority was the opportunity, which of necessity devolved upon the courts to declare, when a specific case was brought before them, their opinion that the law involved in the suit was in violation of the Constitution. It is this judicial power asserted by Marshall which has led to the present movement to destroy the independence of the courts by subjecting the judges to the recall and their decisions to review at the ballot box. On this point, Lincoln spoke often and with great elaboration. He did so because the famous Dred Scott case was a very burning issue in the years immediately preceding the Civil War, if an opinion was ever delivered by a court which justified resistance to, or an attack upon, the judicial authority, it was that one known by the name of a poor negro, Dred Scott. The opinion against which the conscience of men revolted did not decide the case. It was an obiter dictum. It was delivered solely for the purpose of settling a great political question by pronouncement from the Supreme Court. There was no disguise as to what was intended. Mr. Buchanan, informed as to what was coming after his arrival in Washington, announced in his inaugural that the question of slavery in the territories would soon be disposed of by the Supreme Court. The wise practice of the Supreme Court is to decline jurisdiction of political questions, holding that such questions belong solely to Congress and the executive. In this case, the court deliberately traveled outside the record in order to speak upon a purely political question, which then divided the whole country. For such action, there is no defense. Born of the passions of the slavery contest, the Dred Scott case stands in our history as a flagrant attempt by the Supreme Court to usurp power. There has been nothing like it before or since. The lesson of that gigantic blunder was learned thoroughly and will never be forgotten by the court, at least. The attack upon the dictum of the court began with the masterly dissenting opinion of Mr. Justice Curtis, which wrecked Tawney's argument both in the law and the facts. From the courtroom, the attack spread over the country and the utterances of the Chief Justice were assailed with all the bitterness characteristic of that period and defended with equal fervor by those who supported slavery, and declared that a refusal to accept the decision was tantamount to treason. Lincoln, as one of the leaders of the new Republican Party, was obliged to deal with it. He did so fully and thoroughly. All that he said deserves careful study, for there is no more admirable analysis of the powers of the court and of the attitude which should be taken in regard to them. I shall make no excuse for quoting what he said at length, and I may add that his utterances on this great question require neither explanation nor commentary from me or any one else. I will begin, however, with a protest against a bill for the reorganization of the judiciary, signed by Lincoln as a member of the Illinois legislature. These resolutions, which Lincoln drafted, show what his general views were as to the courts many years before the Dred Scott decision. The important portion of them runs as follows. For reasons thus presented, and for others no less apparent, the undersigned cannot assent to the passage of the bill or permit it to become law without this evidence of their disappropriation and they now protest against the reorganization of the judiciary because 1. it violates the great principles of free government by subjecting the judiciary to the legislature. 2. it is a fatal blow at the independence of the judges and the constitutional term of their office. 3. it is a measure not asked for or wished for by the people. 4. it will greatly increase the expense of our courts or else greatly diminish their utility. 5. It will give our courts a political and partisan character, thereby impairing public confidence in their decision. 6. It will impair our standing with other states and the world. Signed by 35 members, among whom was Abraham Lincoln. It will be observed that the first two objections state in the strongest terms the principle of the independence of the judiciary and declare that this great principle is violated by subjecting judiciary to the legislature who were the representatives of the people in this case it happened to be the legislature but the principle is that the court should not be subjected to any outside control or influence whether that control comes from the executive, the legislature, or the voters. Holding these principles, Lincoln, 16 years later, was brought face to face with the Dred Scott opinion, and this is how he dealt with it, a little more than three months after it was delivered, in a speech at Springfield, Illinois, on June twenty sixth, 1857. He, Senator Douglas, denounces all who question the correctness of that decision as offering violent resistance to it. But who resists it? Who, in spite of the decision, declared Dred Scott free and resisted the authority of his master over him? Judicial decisions have two uses. First, to absolutely determine the case decided, and secondly, to indicate to the public how other similar cases will be decided when they arise. For the latter use, they are called precedents and authorities. We believe, as much as Judge Douglas, perhaps more, in obedience to and respect for the Judicial Department of Government. We think its decisions on constitutional questions, when fully settled, should control not only the particular cases decided, but the general policy of the country, subject to be disturbed only by amendments of the Constitution as provided in that instrument itself. More than this would be revolution. But we think the Dred Scott decision is erroneous. We know the Court that made it has often overruled its own decisions, and we shall do what we can to have it overrule this. We offer no resistance to it. Judicial decisions are of greater or less authority as precedents, according to circumstances that this should be so accords both with common sense and the customary understanding of the legal profession. If this important decision had been made by the unanimous concurrence of the judges and without any apparent partisan bias and in accordance with legal public expectation and with the steady practice of the departments throughout our history and had been in no part based on assumed historical facts which are not really true, Or, if wanting in some of these, it had been before the court more than once, and had there been affirmed or reaffirmed through a course of years, then it might be, perhaps would be, factious, nay, even revolutionary, not to acquiesce in it as a precedent. But when, as is true, we find it wanting in all these claims to the public confidence, it is not resistance. It is not factious. It is not even disrespectful to treat it as not having yet quite established a settled doctrine for the country. Contrast these calm words, uttered under the greatest provocation, with the violent attacks now made on the courts for two or three decisions which are in no respect political, and which are as nothing compared to the momentous issue involved in the Dred Scott case, where the freedom of human beings and the right of people to decide upon slavery in the territories were at stake. There is not a proposition which is not stated with all Lincoln's unrivaled lucidity, and there is not the faintest suggestion of breaking down the power of the courts, or of taking from them their independence. A year later, just before the great debate with Douglas, but when that debate had in reality begun, Lincoln, at Chicago on July 10, 1858, again took up the Dred Scott case and spoke as follows. I have expressed heretofore, and I now repeat my opposition to the Dred Scott decision, but I should be allowed to state the nature of that opposition, and I ask your indulgence while I do so. What is fairly implied by the term Judge Douglas has used, resistance to the decision? I do not resist it. If I wanted to take Dred Scott from his master, I would be interfering with property, and that terrible difficulty that Judge Douglas speaks of, of interfering with property, would arise, but I am doing no such thing as that. All I am doing is refusing to obey it as a political rule. If I were in Congress, and the vote should come up on a question of whether slavery should be prohibited in a new territory, in spite of the Dred Scott decision, I would vote that it should. That is what I would do. Judge Douglas said last night that before the decision, he might advance his opinion, and it might be contrary to the decision when it was made. But after it was made, he would abide by it until it was reversed. Just so. We let this property abide by the decision, but we will try to reverse that decision. We will try to put it where Judge Douglas would not object, for he says he will obey it until it is reversed. Somebody has to reverse that decision since it is made, and we mean to reverse it, and we mean to do it peaceably. What are the uses of decisions of courts? They have two uses. As rules of property, they have two uses. First, they decide upon the question before the court. They decide in this case that Dred Scott is a slave. Nobody resists that. Not only that, but they say to everybody else that persons standing just as Dred Scott stands are as he is. That is, they say that when a question comes up upon another person, it will be so decided again, unless the court decides in another way, unless the court overrules its decision. Well, we mean to do what we can to have the court decide the other way. That is the one thing we mean to try to do. Again, in a speech at Springfield, Illinois, on July 17, 1858, he said, Now as to the Dred Scott decision, for upon that he makes his last point at me, he boldly takes ground in favor of that decision. This is one-half the onslaught and one-third of the entire plan of the campaign. I am opposed to that decision in a certain sense, but not in the sense which he puts on it. I say that in so far as it decided in favor of Dred Scott's master and against Dred Scott and his family, I do not propose to disturb or resist the decision. I never have proposed to do any such thing. I think that in respect for judicial authority, my humble history would not suffer in comparison with that of Judge Douglas. He would have the citizens conform his vote to that decision, the member of Congress, his the president, his use of the veto power. He would make it a rule of political action for the people and all the departments of government. I would not. By resisting it as a political rule, I disturb no right of property, create no disorder, excite no mobs. In some notes for speeches which the editors date October 1, 1858, we find this fragment, which is of great interest because it shows how strongly Lincoln felt that the Dred Scott case could be dealt with and set aside under the Constitution without amending that instrument or seeking to break down the independence of the court. The note runs as follows. That burlesque upon judicial decisions, and slander and profanation upon the honored names and sacred history of Republican America, must be overruled and expunged from the books of authority. To give the victory to the right, not bloody bullets, but peaceful ballots only are necessary. Thanks to our good old Constitution, the organization under it, these alone are necessary. It only needs that every right-thinking man shall go to the polls, and without fear or prejudice, vote as he thinks. Again, in the joint debate at Quincy, Illinois, on October 13, 1858, he said, We do not propose that when Dred Scott has been decided to be a slave by the court, we as a mob will decide him to be free. We do not propose that when any other one or one thousand shall be decided by that court to be slaves, we will in any violent way disturb the rights of property thus settled. But we nevertheless do oppose that decision as a political rule, which shall be binding on the voter to vote for nobody who thinks it is wrong, which shall be binding on the members of Congress or the President to favor no measure that does not actually concur with the principles of that decision. We do not propose to be bound by it as a political rule in that way, because we think it lays the foundation not merely of enlarging and spreading out what we consider an evil, but it lays the foundations for for spreading that evil into the states themselves. We propose so resisting it as to have it revised if we can, and a new judicial rule established upon this subject. I will add this that if there be any man who does not believe that slavery is wrong in the three aspects which I have mentioned, or in any one of them, that man is misplaced and ought to leave us. While on the other hand, if there be any man in the Republican Party who is impatient over the necessity springing from its actual presence, and is impatient of the constitutional guarantees thrown around it, and would act in disregard of these, He, too, is misplaced standing with us. He will find his place somewhere else, for we have a due regard, so far as we are capable of understanding them, for all these things. This gentleman, as well as I can give it, is a plain statement of our principles in all their enormity. He discussed the great question many times, but I will make only one more quotation. The passage in his first inaugural, where on the eve of secession and civil war he gave expression, every word weighed and meditated, to his opinions and intentions, on that solemn occasion he spoke thus of the courts I do not forget the position, assumed by some, that constitutional questions are to be decided by the Supreme Court, nor do I deny that such decisions must be binding, in any case, upon the parties to a suit, as to the object of that suit, while they are also entitled to very high respect and consideration in all parallel cases by other departments of the government. And while it is obviously possible that such decisions may be erroneous on any given case, Still, the evil effect following it, being limited to that particular case, with the chance that it may be overruled and never become a precedent for other cases, can be better borne than could the evils of a different practice. At the same time, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government, upon vital questions affecting the whole people, is to be irrevocably fixed by the decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, in ordinary litigation between the parties in personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of the eminent tribunal nor is there in this view any assault upon the courts or the judges. It is a duty from which they may not shrink to decide cases properly brought before them, and it is no fault of theirs if others seek to turn their decisions to political purposes. From these extracts, we may see that Lincoln held the courts had no right to lay down a rule of political action, and that if they did so, no one was bound by it. That now is indeed the position of the court itself. He said that no one should resist the decision in the Dred Scott case, but that it was the duty of all who believed that doctrine, contrary to freedom and to American principles, to seek to have it overruled, not reviewed by the voters at the ballot box or changed by the recall of its authors, but simply overruled by the court itself. Again, no one will dissent but beyond this he did not go. On the contrary, he upheld the judicial authority within its proper domain, and there is no suggestion to be found, even under that bitter provocation, of any attempt to make the court subservient to any outside power by any such device as recall. Still less is there any thought of reversing the decision by popular vote. On the contrary, at Quincy, We do not propose that when Dred Scott has been decided to be a slave by the court, we as a mob will decide to make him free. On the contrary, at Quincy, We do not propose that when Dred Scott has been decided to be a slave by the court, we as a mob will decide him to be free. Speaking to a popular audience, he said, as you remember, there is no need to comment further upon the passages which have just been quoted. It is enough for me to say that Lincoln's discussion of the Dred Scott case seems to me to contain the strongest arguments for an independent judiciary than can be found anywhere. We may also be sure, I think, that Lincoln did not forget in his righteous indignation at the Dred Scott opinion that every slave who set foot on English soil became a free man by Lord Mansfield's decision in the Somersets case. 1772, or that slavery had been ended in Massachusetts by a decision of the Supreme Court of the State in 1783 under the sentence that all men are born free and equal inserted into the constitution of that state for that precise purpose by John Lowell. Passing now from the particular to the general, let me, by a few brief quotations, show you what Lincoln thought of our government under the Constitution as a whole. In a speech at Columbus, Ohio, on September 16, 1859, he said, I believe there is a genuine popular sovereignty. I think a definition of genuine popular sovereignty in the abstract would be about this that each man shall do precisely as he pleases with himself, and with all those things which exclusively concern him. Applied to government, this principle would be that a general government shall do all those things which pertain to it, and that all local governments shall do precisely as they please, in respect to those matters which exclusively concern them. I understand that this government of the united states under which we live is based upon this principle and i am misunderstood if it is supposed that i have any war to make upon that principle in his address at cooper institute in new york on february twenty seventh, 1860 he said now now and here let me guard a little against being misunderstood I do not mean to say we are bound to follow implicitly in whatever our fathers did. To do so would be to discard all the lights of current experience, to reject all progress, all improvement. What I do say is that if we would supplant the opinions and policy of our fathers in any case, we should do so upon evidence so conclusive and argument so clear that even their great authority, fairly considered and weighed, cannot stand and most surely not in a case whereof we ourselves declare they understood the question better than we. In his reply to the mayor of Philadelphia on February 21, 1861, he spoke as follows, Your worthy mayor has expressed the wish, in which I join with him, that It were convenient for me to remain in your city long enough to consult your merchants and manufacturers or as it were to listen to those breathings rising within the consecrated walls wherein the constitution of the united states and i will add the declaration of independence were originally framed and adopted I assure you and your mayor that I had hoped on this occasion, and upon all occasions during my life, that I shall do nothing inconsistent with the teachings of these holy and most sacred walls. All my political warfare has been in favor of the teachings that came forth from these sacred walls. May my right hand forget its cunning, and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if ever I prove false to these teachings." So he spoke at the threshold of the great conflict. Listen to him now as he spoke three years later with the war nearing its close and when the hand of fate could almost be heard knocking at his door. On August eighteenth, 1864, in an address to the 164th Ohio Regiment, he said, We have, as we all agree, a free government where every man has a right to be equal with every other man. And this great struggle... This form of government and every form of human right is endangered if our enemies succeed. There is more involved in this contest than is realized by everyone. There is involved in this struggle the question whether your children and my children shall enjoy the privileges we have enjoyed. I say this in order to impress upon you, if you are not already so impressed, that no small matter should divert us from our great purpose, There may be some inequalities in the practical application of our system. It is fair that each man shall pay taxes in exact proportion to the value of his property. But if we should wait before collecting a tax to adjust these taxes upon each man in exact proportion with every other man, we should never collect any taxes at all. There may be mistakes made sometimes. Things may be done wrong while the officers of the government do all they can to prevent mistakes. But i beg of you as citizens of this great republic not to let your minds be carried off from the great work we have before us he said on august twenty-two, eighteen sixty-four, in his address to the 166th ohio regiment it is not merely for today but for all time to come that we should perpetuate for our children's children that great and free government which we have enjoyed all our lives I beg you to remember this, not merely for my sake but for yours. I happen temporarily to occupy this White House. I am a living witness that any one of your children may look to come here as my father's child has. It is in order that each one of you may have, through this free government which we have enjoyed, an open field, and a fair chance for your industry, enterprise, and intelligence, that you may all have equal privileges in the race of life, with all its desirable human aspirations. It is for this the struggle should be maintained, that we may not lose our birthright, not only for one, but for two or three years. The nation is worth fighting for, to secure such an inestimable jewel." And on August 31, 1864, in an address to the 148th Ohio Regiment, he said, "'But this government must be preserved, in spite of the acts of any man or set of men. It is worthy of your every effort. Nowhere in the world is presented a government of so much liberty and equality. To the humblest and poorest among us are held out the highest privileges and positions. The present moment finds me at the White House.' Yet there is as good a chance for your children there as there was for my father's. With these noble words, uttered as the dark shadows of the past were fleeing away, and the light of the coming victory was beginning to shine upon him, let us leave him. As at Gettysburg, over the graves of the dead soldiers, he declared that the great battle had been fought in order that, Government of the people, by the people, for the people, should not perish from the earth, so now to the living soldiers he said that nowhere in the world was presented a government of so much liberty and equality. Thus at the close, just as at the beginning, when he was a young man entirely unknown beyond the confines of his village, did he speak of the government of the United States under the Constitution. Thus he described his conception of democracy, and that conception he found fulfilled in the Constitution of the United States, and in the great principles of ordered freedom and guarded rights which are there embodied. There is one other point alluded to by Lincoln when he defined genuine popular government, which does not directly concern the subject I have been discussing, but which is of quite equal importance, and upon which I wish to say a few words in closing. The framers of the Constitution made one great contribution to the science of government in the application of the principle of federation upon a scale and in a manner never before attempted. A large part of the Constitution is devoted to the arrangement and adjustment of the relations between the states and the general government. Upon the construction of those relations, as we all know, parties divided and our history largely turned for more than seventy years. The contest was between the rights of the states on the one hand and the powers of the central government on the other. The conflict culminated in a civil war and in the effort of certain states to break up the Union. The result of the war was the preservation of the Union and the defeat of secession. But secession, or the separation of the states, is not the only way in which the Union can be destroyed. The other and no less effective method of destroying the Union is by the abolition of the states, which could be attained by reducing them to merely nominal divisions and taking from them those powers and duties reserved to them by the Constitution and which alone make them living organisms. The first danger ended forever at Appomattox. The second is threatening us, and in no obscure fashion today. The growth of the power of the central government, together with its constant assumption of new duties, is in a degree inevitable, and in a less degree, no doubt, desirable. But this inevitable movement is always quite rapid enough, and should be retarded rather than accelerated. It is not, however, to this tendency of development that I now refer, but to something much graver, and which is in its nature absolutely destructive. There is a widespread agitation in favor of having presidents nominated as party candidates not by the people of the states, each state being allotted the number of votes to which it is entitled by the number of party votes cast at a previous election, but by all the members of the party throughout the country without reference to state lines. It is further proposed, and a constitutional amendment with that objective in view was pending in the Senate at the last session, to have the President elected by the votes of all the people, instead of by the votes of the people of the states, each state having two votes as a state, and additional votes based on population. An amendment to that effect, proposed as an addition to another constitutional amendment, was defeated in the Senate a few weeks ago by a narrow majority. A president so nominated and elected would not be the President of the United States, but of the American Republic, or President of the Americans, as Louis Napoleon was styled, Emperor of the French, having been chosen by a universal plebiscite. Party principles, party organization, party responsibility would all disappear. Perhaps in this connection it is not amiss to remember that in a eulogy upon Henry Clay, delivered in the State House at Springfield, Illinois, on July 16, 1852, Lincoln said, A free people in times of peace and quiet, when pressed by no common danger, naturally divide into parties. At such times the man who is of neither party is not, cannot be, of any consequence." mr clay therefore was of a party as usual in discussing any subject he laid his unerring finger upon a vital point the destruction of parties and party organizations would reduce the unorganized voters acting simply as individuals to a condition of helplessness We should no longer have great organizations with declared principles and established traditions, which could be held to strict responsibility, but simply followers of certain chiefs. Those chiefs would be self-made, presidential candidates with personal manifestos, after the familiar fashion of South American dictators but these objections serious as they are sink into insignificance when compared with the far graver results which lie behind these propositions to nominate and elect presidents by a vote of the whole people without reference to state lines would be a step and a long step toward the extinction of the states that would mean the enormous exaltation of the executive power to which all these movements for the destruction of the Constitution alike tend. The abolition or degradation of the states would mean a real imperialism, and not the sham imperialism about which many excellent people were quite needlessly distressed when we took possession of certain islands after the Spanish War. we might continue to call our territorial divisions states and their chief executive officers governors, but names are nothing, and with the states stripped of all power, they would be in reality provinces and their rulers prefects appointed in Washington. The abolition of the states would mean the loss or the ruin of great principle of local self-government, which lies at the very root of free popular government and of true democracy. The states, within their limitations and in the exercise of their proper powers, are the sheet anchor which keeps the ship of state from drifting helplessly upon the rocks of empire and of personal autocratic rule, where so many great nations have met untimely wreck. These are no imaginary dangers, no alarms conjured up to arrest improvement and advance actual measures leading to the results i have described are being pressed and advocated it is a less obvious a slower more insidious way of destroying the union of states than by open war but if successful it is equally certain in its results we should pause long and think well before we enter upon such changes as these all the more perilous because they are demanded in the name of the people and look harmless perhaps to those who do not stop to consider them we are confronted today with the gravest questions which the american people have been called upon to decide since 1860. i do not mean questions of social or economic policy nor issues of war or peace or foreign relations i mean questions now pressing upon us which involve the very fabric of our constitution under which freedom order, and prosperity have gone with us hand in hand. It is a time for careful thought, a time to tear aside veils of speech and come straight to the substance of things, to facts and principles. Let us not at a time like this, and in the presence of such questions, be the slaves of words and phrases. In the book of Judges it is written, And they said unto him, Say now, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of the Jordan. There has been too much of this of late, too much dependence on how loudly a man would shout certain words, and how he pronounced the shibboleth which was proposed to him. Let us get away from words and phrases and come down to facts and deeds. Before we begin to revolutionize our Constitution and its principles, let us know well what the Constitution is, what it means, what it has accomplished, and whither the changes so noisily urged will lead us. In his message to Congress on July 4, 1861, speaking of the officers of the regular army from the seceding states who had remained true to the government of the Union, Lincoln said, This is the patriotic instinct of the plain people. They understand, without an argument, that the destroying of the government which was made by Washington means no good to them. I have faith that the people today feel as they did then. I am sure that when they shall understand whither they are being led, they will know that to impair or destroy the government which Washington made and Lincoln saved means no good to them. End of section 9.